I wanted to start this sermon this morning out by asking us an important question, one that every person asks. And the question is, what is the good life? If you remember from this psalm, there's a little question in there that doesn't quite come across as a question, mainly because it's hard to translate, but it's verse 12. It says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? I think the Nick Rogers translation of that is, what is the good life? And who wants it? Well, the truth is everybody. So what is the good and happy life? Well, there was a New York Times bestseller called Sapiens, written by a scientist known as Yuval Harari, an atheist and biologist. He said this, thinking about the happy life and the quest for it. Another, that, another is that the findings demonstrate that happiness is not the surplus of pleasant over unpleasant moments. Rather, happiness consists of seeing one's life in its entirety as meaningful and worthwhile. See, the good life, as Harari points out, defies science. See, we can push chemicals into the brain, dopamine and other things, to make you have a feeling of happiness. But the problem is we cannot produce meaningful and worthwhile lives. Augustine also said in the City of God, which we will return to many times this morning, so get ready for a lot of him. But it is the decided opinion of all who use their brains, which if you're human, way to go, you use your brain, that all men, all people desire to be happy. And then it does surprise people at times, and this is a surprise to many people, that the Christian faith and the whole Bible actually has a lot to say about the good life and a happy life. And it should not surprise and will not surprise anyone in this room over the age of five that happiness is hard to find. It is really hard to find. Given all our scientific advancement and the ability to land a rover on the surface of Mars and take samples and then deliver it to us at light speed so that we can know what's going on on the surface of Mars, yet we cannot fix depression and anxiety and fear and sadness. I know this to be true because in the U.S. alone, four out of 10 adult, adults in 2010 reported serious depressive episodes. Around 48,000 people died of suicide in 2021, and 1.7 million attempted it. That's all the recorded ones. And the self-help book industry is a $10 billion industry. So Augustine asked this question, who are the happy people or how do they become happy? These are the questions which the weakness of human understanding stirs endless and angry controversies. Yeah, we all know that. <laughs> We've all seen that. And he wrote that a long time ago. So not much has changed in humanity in those ways. So Nick, why are you trying to depress me right now? Why are you saying all these stats and, these, and this data? Because I want to set us up. The good life, then, is really hard to find. Technology, science, atheism, social media, money, politics, for sure that. And it has not fixed our sadness and our grief and our anxiety, has it? I would conclude that some of those have made it much worse. And it definitely hasn't brought anybody lasting happiness. 
So then we're asked with this big question that I think this psalm is going to answer. And the whole Bible answers is, who are the truly happy? I believe it's going to answer that, number one, through King David's experience as he is delivered out of a really, really intense situation and he's reflecting on it. And then I think the Holy Spirit is going to apply it through Jesus, our Messiah. So, part one is going to be what is the good life? And then part two is going to be the realities of the good life. And I'm from the South. And I used to remember my grandpa would judge a sermon based on when he could get to Applebee's or not. And so he would look at this and be like, I'm going to go ahead and leave. And uh, so I hope that you will see this amount of stuff and not be overwhelmed by it. But we're going to go heavy on the front end and light in terms of content on the back. So let's start with our context because I think the context is going to really help us understand David's words. So the subtext at the beginning of, if you have an ESV Bible, it has a little subtext and it says, a Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. So that he drove him out and he went away. Big note, if you were to go and read 1 Samuel, you would understand really quickly where is Abimelech because he's not in there. Well, his name is actually Akesh. And you're like, why do they change names like that? That drives me crazy. But anyway, so that's just a nice title that he gives Akesh later, it seems. And so his name is Abimelech here, Akesh there if you were gonna go read it. So there you go, there, that's, that's for you. But let's uh, think about the story in a couple of points. So if you were to go read that section of 1 Samuel, David is on the run from Saul. He heads to Gath, which is a Philistine city. Um, and you can see that David has been disseminating, like he's just been decimating the Philistines for a long time. He's been winning lots of battles. and. All of a sudden, he's fleeing to their territory from Saul. That's a really, we would think immediately, if we were reading this as a narrative, that's a really stupid idea, right? And so, but he does that, and he goes there, and he has even Goliath's sword. And if you know the story of Goliath, you know that he was a big Philistine bad guy, right? And, he, and then David defeated him, and he has a sword now, and he's returned there. Well, what's he going to do after he's arrested and he's caught? Well, David acts insane. And you're like, my children are really good at that. You know, like they're really good at that. They're in trouble and they just start drooling. Why are they doing that? Uh, but anyway, in that story, he does something like that. He starts drooling, he starts going crazy. And they're like, who is this guy? And it works out. The Lord actually delivers David through those acts of insanity. And uh, we're thinking, what a clever ruse. David's a really smart dude. He gets out and he, he likes to wiggle out of situations. So we would assume, if he was going to write a song about it, that it would boast in himself and his cleverness. But that's not, it. that's not what we find at all. David, in Psalm 34, actually talks about his deliverance from God. And we look at Psalm 34, and this is a really important word, as a sane meditation on Yahweh's deliverance of him. So let's look at it together. Part one, what is the good life? Let's answer those questions. Because I am a good youth pastor, I will give you the answer right off the bat, all right? And then you can, we'll unpack it together. So here is the answer again from our good friend, St. Augustine. He says this, the human soul, immortal and rational or intellectual, as it is, cannot be happy, and this is really important, 
because I think it answers your big question. Cannot be happy except by partaking of the light of that God by whom itself and the world were made. And also that the happy life which all men desire cannot be reached by any, by any who does not cleave with a pure and holy love to the one supreme good, the unchangeable God, revealed in Scripture. Augustine, reading Psalm 34, right, also thinking about the whole of the Bible and all of the meaning and purpose of humanity behind the, the weight of those words, you were made for one thing, and that is to love and worship God with your whole life. So what is the good life? I'm telling you right now, so I don't have to repeat it at the end, but I might, I might forget. Who knows what happens at the end of a sermon. But you were made to love and worship your creator, God. And so, here's how that happens. He gives us lots of situations and verses to understand it through. First would be praise. We see that in verse one. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David responds to his deliverance and praise. Therefore, we should do the same. And I think that it begs us to ask the question, what am I giving my praise to? That question is a window into my heart. If you ask me that question around September 1st, when Tennessee kicks off and Rocky Top shouts uh, from the Pride of the Southland marching band, I will probably tell you I'm definitely praising that. <laughs> you know, I'm really excited about those things. That's a silly example. It is okay to laugh in church. You can do it. You know, you don't have to hold those back. Because you're like, that's sad, Nick. You know, Tennessee isn't that good. You know, we're all right. All right, so are other, you just, as we think about this, as I, what am I praising and how do others receive that from me? What would they say that I praise, that I love, that I enjoy? What are the things I talk about a lot? And am I praising, am I leading others to God because of it? James 3, 9 through 10 says this, with our mouths we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Yikes. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers and sisters, these things are not to be so. Now, cursing is not telling someone they're wrong, don't get those too confused, but cursing, harming, hurtful words, and then also blessing God. Those two don't go together. Verse two, this, my soul makes a boast in the Lord. What is our tendency to boast in? What is your tendency to boast about? Is it your knowledge? Is it your moral superiority over those who you deem less superior to you? Is it your brain and all of your theology over the ones that don't know anything compared to you? Or is it that you're hurt and your pain is the thing you boast in to people? My shortcomings, self-deprecation is also a form of pride, just the opposite direction. So what are we boasting in? A good and meaningful life then boasts in the Lord for what he's done. David provides an excellent example of that as he comes out of this hard situation. He then gives us the back half of verse two, which is humble. Let the humble hear and be glad. That's a really wild verse. It tells us really quickly what humble people do. Humble people listen and then in listening and seeing God, they are glad in life. 
in every circumstance. See, the humble look for ways to be wowed and awed in God and are easily edified. That was a lot of what Nick Runlet was talking about last month. And as I was thinking about these things, my sons and I were playing football in the backyard yesterday and Aaron kept getting attacked by a butterfly. It was weird. And I thought, this is strange. I've never seen this before. And he hated it. And uh, I just thought, life is really wild, isn't it? That we could be, just look at all the good ways the Lord has blessed me. And it didn't take me long to be amazed by God. And there was a thunderstorm rolling in and just lots of awesome things to see. Gavin Ortland says about in his book, Humility, there are no uninteresting objects, only uninterested subjects. Are you focusing only on your bad stuff in life? That can be a hard place to be. And I understand you, because I do it too. Next, we see that this humility, this praise comes together in congregation. Verse three, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. There's a way that we're being invited to praise the Lord together. You see, the good life or the happy life is not a life of isolation. It is a life with a common goal, a corporate or a congregational or a church or whatever you want to say in that, a simple people's common goal together. This is your life purpose, to magnify and exalt the name of the Lord together. Because if you want to focus on the bad, like I do sometimes, I have endless amounts of stuff to look at. Whatever I want, just go online, go on Twitter, there you go. All the bad. But if I want to magnify God with others, then all of a sudden I see what's good. Magnify the Lord together. Then we see that it's seeking God, crying out to God in trouble. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he delivered me from all of my fears. See, David sought the Lord, and he answered him very specifically when he was delivered from Abimelech. But what happens, you may ask, when God doesn't deliver me from all of my fears? And actually, all of my fears seem to come true every day. And my situation doesn't actually change, and nothing really changes, and I still am left empty-handed. I'm going to pause later, and I'm going to answer that in a minute. I just wanted it to be in your mind. But as we think about those questions, the good life then is still those that look and cry out to the Lord in the midst of their hard circumstance. What do we seek and what do we cry out to? Well, I've found that the people that go through the worst stuff are the people that understand what this text is talking about. And they are the ones that I look to when I'm thinking about this text those who have really endured real trial. Because at the end of it, music, internet, YouTube, all that stuff just never filled the hole inside. It was a real cry to the Lord. Demi Lovato wrote a song when she was in a very deep depression and could not get out. And I'm not sure she ever has gotten out to this day, but she attempted to take her life after writing and singing this song. Maybe you can relate to her when it came to the way that God wasn't answering her. 
I try to talk to my piano. I try to talk to my guitar. Talk to my imagination. Confided into alcohol. I tried and tried and tried some more. Told secrets till my voice was sore. Tired of empty conversations because no one hears me anymore. A hundred million stories and a hundred million songs. I feel stupid when I sing because no one's listening to me. Nobody's listening. I talk to shooting stars, but they always get it wrong. I feel stupid when I pray. So why am I praying anyway if nobody's listening? Anyone, please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. Oh, anyone, please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. If I could speak to and listen to Demi for a few minutes. I would tell her, yes, someone is listening. This text says God hears you when you pray to him. And I would tell her, God did send someone to you. His name was Jesus, God's one and only son. And he told you everything you needed. But it wouldn't take all the pain away. But he did tell you the dangers of finding freedom in anything other than him. See, Jesus took on flesh, was despised and rejected by you. Because of our tendency is to only love Jesus. Now listen to this. Your tendency is to only love Jesus when he gives you exactly what you want. Sometimes I believe we don't want to hear God's voice because we don't want the truth. We want what we want. We want our truth and someone else's truth. But God wants you to know the truth, that those who cry to him, he hears. He wants his children to come to him. Verse five says, those that look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. What does that word ashamed mean? Stupid, looking stupid. Like Demi Lovato said when she was praying and she felt like no one was listening. If you pray to the Lord, you will never be ashamed. Verse six, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. It reminded me of Jesus when he said of disciples of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit is recognizing that Jesus has riches that you don't have. It's the mark of a true disciple. Now, moving to the last part of this point, seeing and tasting the goodness of the Lord and the fear of the Lord. I believe this is all the chunky middle. This is the Cinnabon center, okay, if you will, that you really are eating it just to get to that point. All right, so that's why we're gonna go there with the biggest chunk of time because I believe it's the thing that connects it all together. Well, let's look at this in three different ways. First, following the Lord means you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The reason God doesn't look good to you because you actually haven't tasted it. You haven't seen it. You've tried it other ways. Christ says in John 3 that those who don't believe in him are already condemned. Verse 21 of this, this chapter says, those who reject the righteous are condemned. 
Those who don't follow the Lord and do what I've said are condemned. But the amazing thing is, is that Jesus offers you complete salvation, complete forgiveness, if you will but humble yourself and look to him. Second, take refuge and seek your strength in the Lord. We've all tried to seek comfort in many ways except in God. Third, this is a massive takeaway. I think that this is the biggest one. Holy Spirit, I think, is going to use this more than, because it's the, it's the center. It's fear of the Lord. Do not, who do you fear most? That's probably the best question. Most of us fear politicians and the government most. We fear those who aren't like us the most. We fear the loudest voice that's opposed to us in the room the most. And we do not fear God the most. Jesus said, don't fear those that can kill the body or take your money or take your stuff. Fear the Lord who can take your body and your soul. But that's, that's one side of this, but I think we're wrapped up in fear and I want to see how this is encouraging. Fear is a weird word that we do not understand well when it comes to the Bible, I think. This is a fear that does not cast you out. It's not a dad that's angry at you, ready to throw you out with your suitcase and be like, get out of here, get on the road. That's not the fear of the Lord. It is a fear that is somehow not anxious at all. It is a fear that doesn't weigh you down. And it is a fear that actually serves you to cultivate a heart of love for others and God and leads you to repentance. That's why we fear. Isaiah was a man who looked at everybody around him in Israel and probably thought, I'm a pretty good dude. I got my stuff together. I think God likes me. Pretty good guy. And then he sees a vision of the Lord, and what does he do? He falls apart and he says, nope, I'm not a good guy. And God, you're holy, and I'm a sinner. What am I going to do? And the Lord brings a burning coal and forgives him. So as I promised you, here's the answer to everything you ever asked, okay? Do you want the answer to every question you could ever have? I actually believe this might answer 90% of the big ones that I've had in my life. What happens when my fears do happen? What happens when God doesn't deliver me? What happens when I don't have what I need? How is this song true then? Well, your favorite St. Augustine has a beautiful answer. And it is long, but I did highlight it with lots of color coming up. So, not on this slide, but as it comes through, my visual learners are going to be in heaven and the other people are gonna be like, what is that craziness? All right, so this is how my brain worked through it, but I hope this will help you as I walk through this amazing quote. Augustine talks about this guy, this, this person, this Christian, who's looking at their world and then is like, if I fear the Lord, I won't have what I need. Here's what he says. But if I start fearing God, I won't have a way to make a living. Oh, fear the Lord, all you his saints, for those who fear him will never go without. But he promises abundance. It says it in the text. To those who tremble before him, it says they'll have abundance. Even if they doubt that if I fear God, they will lose their many, many possessions. The Lord fed you when you despised him. 
So will he abandon you now that you fear him? Listen and don't say, that person is rich and I am poor. I fear the Lord, but he has gained so much but not fearing him. And I am left empty-handed. Augustine, the scripture has lied to me and has spoken falsely. Where I hear and sing, the rich do lack and suffer hunger, but when was this man in need? When was Elon Musk in need? When was the, whoever the owner of Amazon is in need? They're not in need. I'm in need. I don't have a Tesla. I don't have what I want, what I need. How come the unrighteous or the people that don't even believe in God get everything that I want and I need? Because Elon Musk has never been hungry. But they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Daily I rise up and go to church, though. Daily I bend my knees. Daily I seek the Lord, and I have nothing good. This man sought not the Lord, and he has died in the midst of all of his good things. Thus thinking, the snare of offense chokes him, for he seeks mortal food on the earth. And he seeks not a true reward in heaven. And so he puts his head into the devil's noose and his jaws are tied close and the devil holds him fast unto doing evil. That so he may imitate the evil man whom he sees die in such plenty. Here's my crazy slide and I hope you get it. Therefore, understand this is not right. My Christian friends and brothers and sisters, when you are filled with spiritual riches, can you ever actually be poor? And was Elon Musk rich because he had a bed of ivory? I bet he does. I bet it's expensive. And are you poor because the chamber of your heart is filled with such jewelry of virtues, justice, truth, charity, faith, and endurance? My Christian brothers and sisters, unfold your riches to each other if you have them, and compare them with the mega billionaires. Have you ever been to Amazon Marketplace and found <laughs> carts full of goods of great value and have bought them with an instant click? He didn't say that, I said it. I don't know if you knew that. If you could find faith to be sold on Amazon, how much would you actually pay for it? I'll let that just weigh on our time together. If you could find faith and put it in your card and purchase it, how much would you even pay for it? What does Jesus say about the faith in the kingdom of God? It's like a man who found a pearl and he sold everything he had so he could get that pearl. How much would you give for that faith which God wills that you should have in abundance, and are you ungrateful? Those mega billionaires have no real value in their bed of ivory and palaces. They lack true riches. And what is heavier, they lack bread. Because Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And again, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. For what, church? They will be filled. Now read this verse again. But they that seek the Lord shall not 
want any good thing. As I close our time together by going to part two, the realities of the good life are very simple. It starts with fearing the Lord, as Augustine has said, and then it flows into our fruits of the Spirit, which start after our good question in verse 12. Verse 13, a fruit of the Spirit of keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. The first way that the good life comes to you and a worthy life comes to you is by what comes out of your mouth. Do we speak evil and deceit to each other and to the world? Then what's the connection? Because those that are filled with the goodness of God, something else comes out of their mouth. It's out of the abundant treasure of their riches in their soul. That's why we can't say to people, I didn't mean what I said to you. How many times I heard that as a child? Or, you're using my words against me. I didn't mean it like that. I don't think we can say that. Because Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. A lot of times we don't have to be told what evil is. We already have a good inclination. The problem is we don't care. We just do it anyway. Because we think that's where happiness is, is in doing evil. and doing evil things. And Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit right now through David's words are saying that is not where good is found. The good life is not found in evil things. It is in doing good and participating in good. Being people of peace that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Pursue peace, not conflict and war. Next, the response of the Lord is to his children. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, this is a promise. The Lord hears you and delivers them from out of all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted, verse 18, and saves the crushed in spirit. I find that when I have looked over my life and have looked at people and myself, I've not been brokenhearted when I should have been. And the people that are brokenhearted, I never long for them to actually be brokenhearted. Because there's typically two people here, those that do not care and want to be somewhere else and do not care what God says. They're not brokenhearted, but it's typically the ones that love God and care about what he says that are brokenhearted. It's like Jimmy Lovato. Is anybody listening? David is saying, and the Lord is saying, the Holy Spirit is applying that the Lord is near right now to you if you are crushed in spirit. If you're poor and weak in spirit, the Lord says you are right where I can do my best work. David is saying you don't have to have a lot of things to be proved that God has loved you because he's already given you everything. And you're like... Okay, I should remember Augustine, all right? I should remember what he says. It's not about beds of ivory or Amazon.com. It's about what God has given me deep. That is true. You have the spiritual wealth of God at your disposal. 
But if you have been hurt, mistreated, know that the Lord cares for you. And he can heal you if you will come to him. And look upon the Son of God, which is our last point. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. See, many Israelites in David's day, had, he, had, he had been on the battlefield. He'd seen people's bones broken. There's been many martyrs die a Christian's death with their bones broken. So is this another lie in scripture, another falsehood? I don't think so. Because this particular text, verse 20, is reaching to the New Testament. As Jesus and other criminals were being crucified between, on crosses, Jesus has already cried out, it is finished, as he takes the weight of sin and he pays the sin debt of all those who would believe in Jesus. He's dying on the cross, he's dead, they break the legs as a custom of those other criminals to make sure that they die quicker. But then they come to Jesus and he's already dead. So they pierce his side and out comes blood and water. 35, he who saw it bore witness, this is John speaking, his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe this is what you're supposed to believe about this story in this verse in Psalm 34. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And I love Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor. He said this, Psalm 34 Verse 20 is like a thread that you're meant to pull on and pull on and pull on until you find it in John 19. And then you finally see what the whole psalm was meant to point to. That to look upon the Lord and gaze upon him and taste and see that he is good is actually found in the crucifixion of Jesus. And that there is no other way to understand this text except in the Savior whom you should gaze upon and was pierced for your sins. And at the end, as you gaze upon him, you look full in the face of your Savior. You're convinced of the truth that God, his goodness to you is in every situation, no matter its circumstance or outcome. And I know some of you want to amen that, but I know some of you are in the struggle in the midst of finding out whether that is true or not. And I know you and I see you. And I love you. And God is near to you. And he's telling you, you can't understand all of this until you've looked at what I've done through Jesus. Not only because of the amazing protection and deliverance of David that we see, but it's the significance of God on undoubtedly, without any shadow of a doubt, loving you and being good to you in every situation. So what is the good life then? What is the happy life? As I invite some friends back up to sing with us as we are gonna close in another song. But what is this good and happy life? 
How can I know? Nick, I know it, I see it, I see what you're saying, but how can I know that God is good to me in every circumstance? Well, God also put Romans 8 in the Bible too. Where it says a verse that's stitched on many people's pillows and is not understood well. God works all things for good for those called according to his purpose. But we do not typically remember what good actually means. See, good is not getting a bunch of stuff and getting everything you desire, but it's you receiving what you never deserved, which is God's grace and mercy through Jesus. And God has given you the strongest proof you ever need because he did not even spare his only son. How much more will he not give you everything that you ever desired? Because when you get this good life in Jesus, all of a sudden, the world looks different. And why don't you give it a try? Try God's good, happy life for you. And it will look like, a lot of times, your situation never changing. That illness never going away. Being abandoned and left. But there is a promise that he will never leave you. Why? Because as we're going to sing now, he didn't even spare his only son for you. And he gave you every spiritual gift.